The sermon text this morning is from the book of 1 John, chapter 2, verse 28, through chapter 3, verse 10. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God nor is the one who does not love his brothers. Well, this is our first Sunday of Advent, so we're taking a short break from Galatians. Advent means coming. So these four Sundays preceding Christmas, they are a time of expectant waiting and preparation for the coming of Christ, always with his second Advent in view. He will return. So our passage this morning speaks of these two appearances of Christ. Uh, One has already occurred and one is yet future and we are living between the two and so were the churches John wrote to. In light of what he says, we find that the Christian life is not a scenic walk in a park overlooking a placid sea. It's more like guerrilla warfare in enemy-occupied territory. There are considerable threats arrayed against us. Let no one deceive you, John says. So there's the threat of false teaching that can infiltrate the church. There's an ancient enemy who's been sinning from the beginning, luring us into his works. And we ourselves in our flesh can sabotage our own fellowship with God through sin. So given these dangers, John wants to fortify his readers and who they are as God's children and exhort them to live holy lives. Abiding in Christ, continuing to walk with Him, obeying Him, and ever-deepening fellowship is evidence of the new birth. Living a holy life and forsaking sin are signs that you've become a Christian. And John will point to the first and second appearances of Christ as powerful motivators on this journey. He tells us plainly why Jesus came. That's the topic of our sermon series for Advent. Why did Jesus come? John says, Jesus came to take away sins 
and he came to destroy the works of the devil. So John, he's not linear in his flow of argument. It's more like he's conducting a symphony with uh, several prominent themes that keep circling back uh, with slight variations each time. Uh, But generally speaking, the passage can be broken in half. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 28 through chapter 3, verse 3 is an exhortation to practice righteousness, looking to the future return of the king. And then chapter 3, verses 4 through 10, is an exhortation to forsake sin, looking back at why Jesus came the first time. So first, let's look at that first exhortation to practice righteousness. Earlier in the letter, John has declared that God is light. In chapter 4, he says God is love. And here in chapter 2, verse 29, and in verse 7, God is righteous. And you see John's logic. He says, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So the new birth through faith in Jesus Christ should be evidenced by holy living. The true Christian practices righteousness because his Father in heaven is righteous. The Christian has been born of him. So you bear the likeness of your Father By the way you live. God is righteous, therefore his children live righteously. Apparently there were some in these churches who had been teaching that a a morally upright life was uh, was a thing of indifference. Just wasn't that all that important. It's hard to say for sure, but uh, this may have been a pre-Gnostic teaching uh, that emphasized some kind of special secret knowledge as proof that you, you are a Christian rather than the practice of righteousness. That you can somehow be righteous without practicing righteousness. John says, no way. If that's what you believe, you have not been born of God. Martin Luther said, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. It's a tragic reality of American evangelicalism, particularly in the South, that so many claim the title Christian, but their lives don't look like Christ at all. If the way you talk, the way you make decisions, the way you spend your money, the way you treat your spouse, the way you conduct yourself at work is indistinguishable from the rest of the world, in what sense are you a follower of Christ? As one commentator said, doing is the test of being. Now, alarm bells may be going off in your minds. Uh, We have just been steeped in Galatians. We have been gravely warned about the dangers of legalism, of presenting our righteousness to God as to somehow merit His favor, to secure our position with Him. No, Paul says, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. We've learned not to look to our outward performance before God, to to find our security in God. No, we look to Christ, and, and I say yes and amen. So what is John saying here? Why the stress on righteous living? What happened to the freedom of the gospel? Well, the gospel is right here. John urges his readers to abide in Christ, to practice righteousness because they have been born of God. Gary Burge, a New Testament scholar, said this, My moral impulse to do right, to obey God's word, to live an ethical life, is the first byproduct of divine rebirth. It is Christian behavior. 
behavior that the world does not recognize and that the world finds incomprehensible that shows us that something divine has happened within us, that we have been reborn. And the order there is critical. God causes the new birth. Practicing righteousness is the evidence that the new birth has occurred. Being born is a passive event. No one can cause their own birth. That's why it's such a good picture of being born again in Christ. God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, causes new life to spring up where it previously was not. Human effort has no place. God simply sets his love on us. And John here, for a couple verses, revels in being born of God, that we have a new identity as God's children. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. If you grew up in Sunday school, maybe you remember singing the King James, behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us. So in the Greek, the expression is actually, of what country? John is so astonished by the lavish love of God that it seems unearthly, like it's from a foreign country. In view of our utter spiritual destitution, behold the extent of God's love. Not, not because we were, we were so lovely or because we were so lovable did God set his love on us. No, out of his very nature, he called us his children, and he brought us into his family. So, you know, we should wake up every morning and whisper to ourselves, I am a beloved son of God. I am a beloved daughter of the king. We have to preach it to ourselves. You have a home with God. Your father loves you more than you can possibly imagine. And it's true right now. If Christ has come to you, if you have been born of God John says, beloved, we are God's children now. So can, can you let the security of that just, just fill up your heart this morning? And yet John adds something more. There's something coming for us that John can't even fully put into words. What we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. So friends, there is a day drawing near when Jesus will return. We will see him face to face. And we will finally and forever be conformed to the image of the Son with a glorified, indestructible body like his own, with a mind and a heart that no longer has any inclination to sin whatsoever. See, do you see what John is doing? Do you want to grow in holiness, do, do you want to be confident when he appears and not shrink back from him in shame at his coming? John says, see the love of the Father and hope in the return of the Son. We're given a promise. Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So God is righteous. All those born of him practice righteousness. Christ is pure. All those who hope in him purify themselves. So there is a work of purifying yourself. But look at how it's done. By hoping in him. It's done by faith. So friends, I think we all have a lot of heart work to do. Each of us. 
Ponder deeply the Father's love for you. Rest in the unshakable fact that you are his child and fix your gaze on his future return. There's this hope we have. And we've got to talk to each other about these things. I find often I can't effectively preach to my own heart without the help of a fellow Christian. Well, John is calling us to maturity and confidence and assurance. If you know to whom you belong, it has to change the way you live. You have a new nature now. Verse 9 says, God's seed abides in you. You have a new master now, and you should want with all your heart to please him, to, to love what he loves, and to hate what he hates. There should be new desires and new longings and new godly ambitions. It's why we ask on our membership application, what evidence do you presently see in your life that assures you that you are truly his child? It's a good question. Resting in Christ should ignite a holy striving for Christ. Effort is a fruit of faith. There's work for you to, to do. Do you, do you know that God has prepared before the foundation of the world good works for you to walk in? So friends, lean into his good plan for your life. Set your hand to the plow and don't look back. Don't you want to discover what those good works are? You might know the name George Whitfield. He was a renowned English evangelist of the 18th century. Uh, worked uh, tirelessly to preach the gospel up and down the American eastern seaboard. He came to America from England, crossing the Atlantic six times in his lifetime. This is in the 1700s, preaching to thousands and thousands of people and helping bring about a spiritual awakening. Charles Wesley, his friend, wrote a tribute to Whitfield when he died. I won't read the whole thing, but these are the closing lines. He writes, Resolved to use the utmost strength bestowed, like him to spend and to be spent for God. By holy violence seize the crown so nigh. Fight the good fight, our threefold foe defy. And more than conquerors in the harness die. Isn't that how you want to go out? On your horse, in the saddle, fulfilling your calling, doing your duty, spending and being spent for God? Tom, he asked us this question once. How are you leveraging your gifts and opportunities and privileges for the sake of Jesus Christ? None of us will be Whitfields, not my point. But each of us has been gifted. Each of us have, has unique opportunities and privileges. How are you leveraging them for the sake of the kingdom of God? So yes, there is a clear call to practice righteousness. It's the mark of a genuine Christian. And John says in verse 10, By this it is evident who are the children of God. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. I can't deny that there is a note of warning there. But he addresses them affectionately, twice calling them little children or, or dear children. He calls them beloved. He, he loves these people, and as a good pastor, he wants to protect them from wolves in sheep's clothing. Little children, do not let no one 
deceive you, he says. The theologian John Stott writes, the tenderness of the address is called out by the peril of the situation. So John wants them to be less vulnerable to false teaching. He wants to bolster their assurance and their joy in God as they see evidence of God's work in them. So we've seen that the practice of righteousness is a mark of a, of a true child of God, and now we see that being a child of God is incompatible with the practice of sin. So John first describes the nature of sin, verse 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness, sin is lawlessness. It's unlikely that John is referring here to the Mosaic law in particular because he makes no mention of, of the law anywhere else in his letters. Uh, sin is the breaking of God's revealed law, but there's a spirit of lawlessness behind that rebellion that John is driving at. So sin is a defiance of God. It is an open rejection of His authority. When we sin, we are saying, I am my own law. In view of the breathtaking majesty of God, consider how scandalous, how appalling it is for a creature to relate to his creator in that way. John is pressing home the grim nature of sin, but he also tells us its origin. Verse 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. So sin is lawless, but it's also diabolical. From the first moment of his rebellion against God, Satan has been sinning in all his various works. The Bible describes him as crafty and the deceiver of the whole world, a liar and the father of lies. He is the accuser of the brothers. He's depicted as a prowling lion looking for someone to devour. Jesus said he was a murderer from the beginning. And John says making a practice of sinning is to be of the devil. That's who you're in league with. John calls such people children of the devil. Now, this is a, this is a holiday weekend. I'm sure some of you are visiting with us. Perhaps you're here with family. Uh, maybe you don't normally find yourself in church on Sunday mornings, and now you've got a guy up here talking about the devil and being a child of the devil. You know, what's up with that? Uh, is this the Middle Ages? You know, what's going on here? I sympathize with you. I realize that for most people today, speaking in such a way is bizarre and distasteful. And yet your argument is, is not really with me, but, but with Moses and with Paul and with Peter and with John and with Jesus himself. It, it really comes down to their authority versus yours. You have to deal with their own testimony. Jesus told Peter... Behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. So according to Jesus, the devil is real and he is very much at work. Now, verses 4 through 10 have troubled Christians for hundreds of years. John writes, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. You may be thinking, I certainly have kept on sinning. What does that mean for me? Does John mean Christians are supposed to be incapable of sin? Or that a state of sinless perfection is possible in this life? 
Well, surely not. He's already told us back in chapter 1 that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And in uh, verse 2, we've already looked at that. uh, It says we won't be perfect like Jesus until he appears. So clearly we still sin as believers. So what does John mean here? Well, the ESV translation helpfully draws out the Greek present tense and the phrase makes a practice of sinning and and also the phrase keeps on sinning. He's not talking about isolated incidents of sin, but a, a settled habit of sin, a settled character in sin like the devil's. That does not describe a child of God. John says, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. So it's not, it's not possible. If you continue in unrepentant sin as a settled habit, you haven't come to know Jesus Christ. And again, the new birth has made the decisive Difference. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. So a definitive setting apart has occurred. Paul says the old has have passed away. Behold, the new has come. So for the Christian, sin should fill us with revulsion. We grieve over our sin and we hate it and we do everything in our power to fight against it. When we think of things we once did and, and, and considered them not that bad, now we, we, we grieve, we, it fills us with nausea to think, I once considered that okay, but I can never think of, of doing that now. It fills us with dread. So if you're in earnest white-knuckled combat with sin, that's an indication that you've been born of God. The theologian Jerome of the 4th century said this, let a man grieve for his sin and enjoy for his grief. Now I know that for many of you here, I am on the edge of a knife. There is a word of warning, but I want to give a word of consolation as well. John is warning against a casual indifference to sin. Sin is a a grave violation against God. Every time we sin, it matters. Some of us are foolishly playing with sin, and we need to wake up to the danger that we are in. Are you presuming upon the kindness of God? Do you try to assure yourself with, with things like, oh, he understands, or... It's God's job to forgive me. That sounds snake-like, and that is false doctrine. John, on the other hand, he speaks with jarring clarity, and it's the kind of clarity that we so desperately need. It's like a slap of cold wind that drives the smog away. John says there's only two groups of people, the children of God and the children of the devil. But it it seems the false teachers, they they preferred a muddled middle. They had made their own sinful ways seem right. And John, he's not having any of it. It's really a mercy that he writes the way he does. He wants his readers to see the danger of sin, how vile an offense it is against God, and for them to see who they are cooperating with as they carry it out. John Owen, he was a theologian of the 17th century, and he wrote this. 
Get a clear and abiding sense upon your mind and conscience of the guilt, danger, and evil of your sin. He says, sin aims always at the utmost. Every time it rises up to tempt or entice, might it have its own course, it would go to the utmost sin in that kind. Every unclean thought or glance would be adultery if it could. Every covetous desire would be oppression. Every thought of unbelief would be atheism. Might it grow to its head. Sin wants to take you down. It wants to take you all the way down. The sinful nature wants to give birth to an exquisitely perfect sin. And the devil is seeking your utmost misery in the process. Life and death are in the balance here. Paul writes, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Are you holding on to some sin in your life, refusing to repent, refusing to let it go, refusing to obey the clear teaching of Scripture? Many years ago, I wrote a question in my journal. What does the Christian do when he sins? It was a personal question even though I wrote it in the third person. It's funny how we do that. I wasn't thinking what transpires in the build-up and actual act of sin. I knew that sequence well enough. What I was wrestling with was what is the Christian to do now that he has sinned? How does he go forward? And, And what does it all mean? Is his salvation now in question? Will God take me back when I feel so unworthy? How am I to think about my relationship with God now? And and how do I stop sinning in this particular way? So I tried to put my thoughts down. You've probably been there. Tied up in theological knots, fearful and despondent. Maybe that's where you are this morning. You're trapped in a cyclical pattern of sin and despite everything you've known to do, you, you can't get out of it. And now you have this text staring back at you. Well, let me remind you, a sinless man has come to take away your sins. That's why he appeared. That's why he was born. Jesus came to rescue you from sinning. You look at chapter five, uh, verse 5, at the plural word sins, your specific individual Sins, Jesus appeared in order to take them away. Not just the guilt of your sin, but your sins. Sinning and lawlessness and rebellion are the works of the devil. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. How did he destroy them? He appeared at Christmas and then he died and he rose again in your stead. That's how he did it. That was the entire purpose of his first advent. And only Jesus could do this. Only a sinless man could take away the sins of others. He has no guilt of his own. He has no propensity to sin of his own. He is able to remove this burden off your back. If you've read uh, Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan, you'll remember a Christian with that monstrous weight of sin on his back. But when he came to the cross, it fell off and it went straight into the grave. And that's what Christ has done for those who know him. So brothers and sisters, you have been cleansed from your sins and therefore the the devil has nothing left to say to you. 
He can no longer hurl his accusations at you. He will try, but we take up the shield of faith with which we can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. That's Ephesians 6, 16. His barbed shafts can no longer get to our hearts. God has disarmed the demonic rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. Colossians 2.15 Jesus destroyed the works of the devil on the cross where you were crucified with him. The old you was blinded by and enslaved to the devil, but that old man and his old ways were put to death in Christ. So the old you, he is lying there in the corner of the cell. His throat has been slit. He is bleeding out. He has been vanquished. He has lost his mastery. And in his final gasps, he just continues to whisper those, come back, come back to the old ways. Our job is to go into that cell daily and the power of the Holy Spirit and punch that old man in the face to silence his lies. Now, why, why would I talk in such a way? This is gruesome, right? The scriptures tell us to consider ourselves dead to sin. And so it's helped me to come up with such illustrations. I want to punch him and I don't want to dare give him a scrap of food because that only encourages him. It makes his voice louder. I want to starve him out. I want to put to death the deeds of the body. This is what John is calling us to, to forsake sin. This is the mark of a genuine Christian. And again, many times we can't carry this out without the ministry of others who care for us. So I plead with you, don't stay isolated. Talk to someone here who you can trust. If your conscience is provoked this morning, let that mercy of God have its full effect. Seek someone out, even this morning. You could say, hey, can we have coffee this morning? I've got some things I need to talk through, and I think you can help me. You can do that. And to the overly scrupulous, those with a hypersensitive conscience, I want to encourage you. I'm one of you. You can, by faith, confess your sins to Jesus because he's appeared to take them away. You can rest in your Father's love for you, and you can get up, you can dust yourself off, and you can keep walking. Your friends need you, your spouse needs you, your children need you. Don't stay incapacitated by shame and guilt. The Lord's mercies are new every morning. The steadfast love of God endures forever. Keep walking. We're all family here, right? We are all family. We are all helping each other to the river's edge. Each of us with our own weaknesses and foibles, and there are landmines along the way. There is barbed wire. There is quicksand. There are imposters who are beckoning us to come down these supposed shortcuts. All of the manifold works of the devil, Jesus came to destroy them in fulfillment of prophecy as God spoke in the garden long ago that one would come to crush the head of the serpent. And this is an ongoing work. You know, we live in the already but not yet. These things have not been finally consummated, but that day is coming. Every good design of God that Satan has marred, Jesus will restore. That's why he came. He says, behold, I am making all things new. 
And in the end, the devil will be cast into a lake of fire. Vengeance is the Lord's. Merry Christmas. Let's take a few moments to ponder these things, and then I'll pray for us.